the purpose of life is a life of purpose. Okay, but what about what I was asking? Love without trust is a river without water. Yeah, these are just inspirational quotes. I, I, I wanted the meaning of life. Life is like a cup of tea. It's all in how you steep you the water. Are you kidding me? You're supposed to be the almighty. Oh, there is always a catch with these god stories. The holodeck just made a cheesy quote generator. But we, we came all this way. I want answers. Laughter and a good night's sleep. Shut up. <laughs> to Trechnobabble Psychobabble, where art, music, politics, philosophy, and especially psychology meet far beyond the stars and where few have gone before. I'm Elliot, your resident Trek nerd and cynical Crash Gab sequel. And I'm Elizabeth, holodeck lounge singer and student of humanoid psychology. Our mission each week is to boldly tackle an idea or ideas through the lens of our beloved franchise, to seek out and explore new perspectives about who we are and who we could be. This week, Elizabeth and I are spending some time on the holodeck in search of deeper meaning. We will begin with DS9's seventh and final season. Bada Bing, Bada Bang, aired in 1999, was written by Ira Stephen Bear and Hans Beimler and directed by Mike Fahar. So it's the eve of the endgame of the Dominion War, and Bashir and O'Brien are enjoying a round at Vic's bar in the Hollow Suite. The classy joint and Sinatra vibe are abruptly changed to a dingy burlesque show and news that the bar has been bought by one Frankie Eyes, a Vegas gangster. The program can't be adjusted or turned off, at least not without resetting the whole thing, erasing Vic's memories and experiences. Moreover, if Vic is harmed within the program, he'll be permanently deleted. All of this is a jack-in-the-box, included in the original program by its designer, Felix, the same man who programmed Vic himself to be so remarkably lifelike. Most of the cast are eager to solve the problem, but Worf and especially Sisko don't want to hear about it. Sisko, in fact, doesn't much care for Vix. How come you've never been to Vix? Does it matter? You like going there and I don't. Let's leave it at that. I was only asking. And I gave you my answer. There are times when I just can't figure you out. Well, maybe that's part of the attraction. Believe that if you want to. The solution is for the cast to play along with the Holosuite scenario. In this case, they're going to have to pull off an ocean-style heist and rob the casino. In the end, Sisko is convinced to play his part along with his friends and crew. The heist doesn't quite go to plan, but the gang are successful nonetheless. Vic's program is restored and he and Sisko even take to the stage for a little fourth wall breaking song to close out the episode. Why is it fourth wall breaking? Like, I just enjoyed, like, watching Avery Brooks sing. Like, that was great. Don't get me wrong. I mean, it's actually kind of funny because, yeah, uh, Avery Brooks is a much better singer than James Darren, um, but that's okay. Still, it's a real good bet. The best is yet to come. The best is yet to come, and babe, won't it be fine? You think you see best is yet to come. Yeah, so they're, they're, the next thing to happen after this episode is like the whole 10 or 11 episode um, final arc of the of the war and of the series. So it's like, don't worry, we're, we're going to be back to regular business next week. 
Yeah. Okay, okay. Yeah. So, like, a little bit of foreshadowing, <laughs> but, like, also a little bit of, like, indulging the fans. Like, I'm all for that, you know, in, in like, pr- appropriate proportions. Yeah, not to get too uh, armchair quarterbacky about a series that's been off the air for 30 years, but um, in my opinion, this episode on its own and its context works pretty well. It's not perfect by any means, but the seventh season had a lot of, like, okay, let's get on with it episodes to the point where when we got to this one in regular airtime, it was sort of like, okay. (laughs) Like there's that scene where they're all in, um, in their costumes for the holiday suite walking past Quark and Morn. Yeah. And in my head, it's sort of like, Hey guys, uh, you go into like a war planning meeting or, uh, what's, what's going on? (laughs) What's going on with that? Yeah. Like, do you remember the other thing that's supposed to be (laughs) happening right now? That's funny. That's funny. I, I actually appreciated, I mean, jumping into this one episode in the seventh season, have it having been a while since I've watched the whole series and the whole seventh season, I forgot that context. But in isolation, I really did enjoy the, just that shot of them just like walking down the hallway into the holodeck. It like was just kind of like the gangster, oh, you yeah. know, like, you know, and band the, shot with, vibe. With it the, was fun. With the DS9 theme on the big band. No, it's, it's fun. It's great. sure you notice elizabeth uh there's a there's a standout moment between cisco and cassidy gates where they're talking about why he doesn't want to go into the holodeck and he brings up the historical inaccuracy of the way black people were treated in 1950s 60s las vegas which he's not wrong about um in an episode that is otherwise people having fun it stands out as like oh okay here's a here's a real topic here's something to really be serious about But I think they could have done a lot more. (laughs) In 1962, black people weren't very welcome there. Oh, sure, they could be performers or janitors, but customers never. Maybe that's the way it was in the real Vegas, but that is not the way it is at Vicks. I have never felt uncomfortable there, and neither has Jake. But don't you see? That's the lie. In 1962, the civil rights movement was still in its infancy. It wasn't an easy time for our people, and I'm not going to pretend that it was. Like, it is kind of an isolated scene in the whole episode, though they, it does, I think, create some motivation. Like, it's part of what helps Cisco get there. You know, the yeah. fact that, like, he was able to share what his problem was and have Cassidy respond, like, in a different way. I, and I, and also, maybe also a little bit fourth wally. I'm sure Avery Brooks fought for that to be included, you know, because he, he had a really good eye and mind for, like, social justice issues. Um, and, like, a lot of that came out in the show and through his character, which is really great. I sometimes have, I've had similar criticisms, I think, when I think about, like, Ren fairs, for example, you know, like not to bash on Ren fairs, like they look like a lot of fun, but like people aren't dressing up as like actual peasants, like they're dressing up as like this romanticized version of what they think the Renaissance would be, and it's really really fun, but it's not accurate. Right. And I think like no, are people like beating something... their wives or like yeah starving or <laughs> right. You're not yeah. doing everything. Or, like, covered in filth. You know, like, it's not accurate. It's right. this, like, romanticized version that kind of glosses over, I think, some real human suffering that I think is Cisco's like, criticism of this holodeck program. 
are you doing a disservice to the people who did suffer through that time by not acknowledging what their story and what happened to them? Like, I think that's his criticism. I know that Vix isn't a totally accurate representation of the way things were, but it isn't meant to be. It shows us the way things could have been, the way they should have been. We cannot ignore the truth about the past. And there's a valid point to that. And there's a valid point to Cassidy's response in that, like, going to Vix isn't going to make us forget who we are or where we came from. What it does is reminds us that we are no longer bound by any limitations, except the ones we impose on ourselves. And, you know, a lot of that's happening today. You know, like, we're recording in 2023, and Hamilton was a big thing a couple of years ago. It still is a big thing. And that's, like, gone over into, like, what is it, the Bridgerton series, where mm -hmm. it's, like, you know, Jane Eyre, England times, but it's all, like, different races now. You know, it's anachronistic. Yes, you know, it's, very... like, this is the, these historical period dramas with like modern sensibilities and there's something fun about that you know it's definitely not accurate but i think there is a little bit of like almost revolutionary subversion by mm -hmm. like taking back that kind of genre and like inserting people who weren't allowed into it the first time so like i think there's valid points on both sides you know yeah a, a couple things one even in even in this the, like in vix program um it's colorblind, which is historically inaccurate, but it's certainly not genderblind. Yeah. I mean, the whole the whole way the heist works out is especially the the, the women uh, Kira and Esri playing up on the whole. Oh, I need a big man to help me gamble. Blah 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 blah. All that stuff. You look just like the captain of our football team. I had such a crush on him. Well, um, actually, I uh, I did play a little football. I knew it. You have the body of an athlete. Chuck Cardman, yeah. save me! And it's funny yeah. because um, they're not actually gonna get like raped or abused or whatever. <laughs> we know that, but it's sort of like, yeah, it's historical in certain ways and, and not in other ways. So that's that's something to yeah. sort of just bear in mind in terms of Cisco's point. But the thing about Cisco is, you know, he plays baseball on the holodeck all the time and he recreates all these historical games. Uh, including games that take place in a time when uh, you're, you're a black baseball player, you're not going to be treated particularly well. And I'm sure Cisco yeah. doesn't have him and his son in the hollow suite with people like shouting slurs at them, right? <laughs> like that wouldn't be any fun. Why would he do that? But he still enjoys the game. He enjoys the period. So he is anachronistic uh, in his programs, yeah. obviously. So it's sort of a question of like, well, there is a time to be serious and there's a time not to be and you gotta know where to put your mind that's fair and that's a really interesting point that like cisco's okay with it being inaccurate when, when it's something he enjoys yeah but when he like doesn't quite get the appeal of something that's when that criticism enters and i think that's really human like <laughs> if there's something of course I, I, i'm guilty of this i'll admit even with the series of ds9 sometimes where mm -hmm. I notice something that I really don't like about what it's saying, like philosophically or what, whatever. Um, and it'll draw my attention to other things that probably don't really matter that annoy me, <laughs> um, that, yeah. that, that become annoying because of the fact that I am focused in this one place, not this other place. And that's true of all the, the, the franchise, of all media sometimes. I mean, 
this is a whole other tangent we could go on, but people will really get um, caught up in like narrative inconsistencies and production problems or maybe acting um, yeah. things they notice in a series because they don't like what it has to say or an agenda they perceive, mm. whatever, whatever it is. People think they're talking about one thing and they're really talking about another. And it's important to just sort of self-reflect sometimes and step back and say, what am I really look getting out of this? You want people to self-reflect. That's admirable. <laughs> well, don't you? It's your whole job. <laughs> <laughs> um, I do, but it's also my job to help people get there versus like expect them to do it without uh, me helping them. Right. Well, good luck with that. Yeah. <laughs> Um, the other interesting piece to me about this is, so this Jack in the Box, uh, feature of Vic's program. Yeah. Um, you know, Vic is another sentient, uh, AI, probably sentient. It's not totally clear, but probably sentient. He certainly has. But he's, um, he's self, he's self-aware that he's a holodeck yeah, he's self. He's certainly so self-aware. Um, he's comparable in a lot of ways to like the doctor on, on Voyager or Data. Um, but unlike those other two examples about which we've talked a few times um you know vic is so so data aspires to human emotions and human relationships uh, which he's not capable of probably um and then the doctor despite being an incredible physician wants yearns to be a respected artist you know that's sort of his his arc um and it's always that that struggle vic is programmed to be a really good lounge singer and makeshift counselor and he likes it and doesn't aspire to be anything more um and it's interesting possibly dystopian in that you can program a sentient being to be happy with their lot in life and not strive for more i don't know what did you think about that so you're suspicious of people who are happy with their lives and just want to live like hey you know i go to work and i come home and i make dinner and i spend time with my family and yeah, if, if you're really happy, happy with it. if you're happy, there's obviously something wrong with you. Like, the, the, you, <laughs> I thought that I thought everybody knew that. Oh, <laughs> really? Yeah, it's this is this is probably more than we can get into in this particular episode. But it's 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 some let's put let's let's put a pin in it because there's some there's there's stuff that that occurs to me. But with respect to this Jack in the Box aspect of his program. Um, it occurs to me that Felix, the designer, is essentially testing whether or not his sentient program was successful in its function of befriending and counseling uh, the, the people who run the program, in this case, the DS9 crew, mm-hmm. because at this point they are in a position where they either say, well, you matter to us as a person, so we're going to go through this nonsense to, to help you and, 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 and restore your program. Or they can say, well, we're going to reset you because it's, it's the hollow suite. Like we don't, you're not a person. And it's a test to see whether or not it's been successful. Don't you like Vic? As a singer, I find him entertaining, but beyond that, I neither like him nor dislike him. He is a hologram and therefore he does not exist. He does for me. I just talked to Felix. I know what's been affecting Vic's program. It's a jack-in-the-box. Yeah, it's better to shake things up, you know, make things interesting. I wasn't bored. Were you? Well, not at all. I liked Vic's the way it was. Well, if anything happens to Vic, his matrix will be eliminated from the program permanently. 
The news just keeps getting better, doesn't it? What news? Vic Fontaine's hotel's just been bought by gangsters. I see. When do you plan on going back to work? You're assuming that Felix designed the program with the goal of having the crew get attached to Vic and inserted this jack-in-the-box to test whether or not that had happened, whether or not they'd go through the the struggle or the side quest, if we're thinking of this in game terms, yeah. of of helping him, or if they would just reset the program and get back to the way they liked things, regardless of how it affected the character. Yeah, I, I think so. Okay. Um, I, I guess I don't, other than it just being a challenge, uh, I don't understand what other function it would serve to do. Because the whole the whole motivation for yeah. doing this side quest is about um, Vic's personhood. Like if 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 it's just about having a heist, they could just do a heist program. But the whole idea is that this is something they have to do in order to make and they have to have it like a, there's a time limit. They have to do it now. They can't just, like, save the program and get back to it, you know, after the war. <laughs> they have to do it right now. So it's, it, 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 it's weird, <laughs> um, but they have to kind of put their, like, real life on hold for this fantasy life. And th so that's the test is, like, has Vic crossed that threshold into being uh, as important to them as any other person? For me, I, th I think I watched that episode as, like, Felix just inserted this as... A possibility because that really could have happened mm. you know in 1960s vegas you know they were gangsters it's just it's another it's another possibility of what could have happened and whether or not the crew wanted it to like oh yeah great this is now a gangster mob you know a gangster mob lounge or do they really want to go back to the way it was before um but honestly i i your your backstory and and framing of it is really enticing and convincing so i think i want to go with that one i like that yeah and it's we'll, we'll come back to this idea of where meeting comes from in the comes in the holodeck and the hollow suite mm -hmm. but as as an innovative and sort of cutting edge uh programmer that's what felix is depicted as in in the show okay i think that that's how he's it, it seems to me like an intelligent way to sort of push the technology and to say, yeah. um, all right, you know, we had, do you remember Minuet from the first season yeah. of TNG? So there was this first one yeah. where they're like, hey, you could actually have a feeling <laughs> about a holodeck character. How insane is yeah. that? And now it's 14 years later, just about. And the question is, all right, is this really a program? Now this is happening concurrently with the Doctor and Voyager, but of course the Doctor is isolated from the rest of humanity in the Federation, so they don't know what, that that's happening yeah. yet. So it, as, in terms of an intentional design of a hologram, to me that, that feels that feels true to life in terms of <laughs> how AI and, and entertainment technology tends to go. Well, I was about to say, like I think that's true to like entertainment media as well. Like People get People were so devastated when characters on Game of Thrones died. You know, like, we get these attachments to fictional characters, and we have emotional experiences based on them. Like, um, I, I mean, you and I have, just, have talked about this, but, like, you and I both have watched Andor recently, and there is, which is 
phenomenal. Oh my God, so good. Um, but there, there was a death in, there were many deaths in that um, series, spoiler alert, but there was one in particular that punched me in the gut. And I was like, I couldn't believe how quickly I got attached to that character. And then they killed them off. And I was like, ah, and that's great. Like, look at the power that storytelling can like has, like we get these, like we get attached to people that aren't quote unquote real, but that attachment is real. What they mean to us is real. Yeah. Um, well, there are, we're not talking about this episode today, but there's an episode, another episode of Voyager where Janeway becomes attached to, um, a holographic character and that that question becomes yeah. kind of central to the episode we'll we'll have to put yet another pin because there's a lot to talk about michael sullivan is a hologram his broken heart can be mended with the flick of a switch your feelings however are a little more complicated i become romantically involved with a hologram if that's possible tell me what happened oh you know the story girl meets boy girl modifies boy subroutines michael sullivan is exactly my type Attractive, intelligent. We share the same interests. And if there's something I don't like, I can simply change it. I've noticed that humans usually try to change the people they fall in love with. What's the difference? In this case, it works. We had a picnic by the lake yesterday afternoon. Then he began to snore. Did I nudge him with my elbow, hoping he'd roll over and stop? Why bother when I could simply access the computer and alter his vocal algorithms? And that's exactly what I was about to do. When I realized that everything around me was an illusion, including him, he's not real. He's as real as I am. Photons and force fields, flesh and blood, it's all the same as long as your feelings are real. Voyager's sixth season brought us Pathfinder later the same year. It was also directed by Mike Vihar and written by David Zabel and Kenneth Biller. We start in the Alpha Quadrant, on Earth in fact. Deanna Troy has stopped by Reg Barkley's place, as disheveled and chaotic as you might imagine it to be. He confesses that his purpose in asking her to come goes beyond their friendship. He's in need of his old counselor's help. Barkley is an engineer with the Pathfinder Project, which was set up after the events of Message in a Bottle to try and send another message to Voyager in the Delta Quadrant. You got through to Starfleet. I spoke directly with headquarters. I told them everything that's happened to this crew. They said they would contact your families to tell them the news and promised that they won't stop until they found a way to get Voyager back home. They wanted you to know you're no longer alone. Barkley is his usual obsessive self and has the ambition to establish two-way communication with Voyager and allow Admiral Paris, who oversees the Pathfinder project, to speak to his son. Barkley's obsession isn't just professional, though. He's been spending an inordinate amount of time in the project's holodeck on a simulation of the Voyager they use to run tests. Reg has also populated the simulation with the Voyager crew, at least versions of them he has extrapolated. He plays games with them, converses, even sleeps in holographic quarters. Reg is remarkably more at ease around the holograms than he is real people, reminiscent of his behavior in hollow pursuits, even turning down social gatherings to spend time on the holodeck. They're the only people that I can talk to. They're not people. Sounds more like escape than work. I can't concentrate if I'm not relaxed. Can't you relax with your friends? Friends? Commander Harkins invited you to his home. 
You went to the holodeck instead. In the real world, Barclay's obsession leads him to overstep his rank and blurt out his wild theory directly to Admiral Paris. His obsession eventually gets him suspended from the project entirely. This is actually why Reg asked Deanna to visit him. He wants her to clear him for duty. I can't do that. Why not? Look at yourself. You're experiencing acute anxiety, sleeplessness, paranoia. Ever, ever since I, I left the Enterprise, things haven't, haven't been the same. It's as if I lost my family. So you created a new family on the holodeck. Only they're not real. I didn't know how else, how else to cope. She wants to help him adapt to life on Earth and develop real relationships with his colleagues over the holograms. But Reg isn't ready for that step just yet. During the night, he breaks into the Pathfinder holodeck to run a field test of his newest theory. His boss, Harkins, and security discover his unauthorized access and work to shut him down. Reg tries to use his holographic friends to prolong his little adventure, but eventually he's subdued. At the last moment, Reg's theory is proven correct and he establishes direct contract with the real Voyager, just in time to allow Admiral Paris to deliver a brief message of hope to the crew lost in the Delta Quadrant. They're an exemplary crew, your son included. Tell him, tell him I miss him, and I'm proud of him. I want you all to know we're doing everything we can to bring you home. We appreciate it, sir. Keep a docking bay open for us. We hope to see you. That's it. You're gone. You did it, Reg. In the wake of his success, Barkley becomes a minor celebrity on board Voyager and manages to get himself a date with Harkin's sister-in-law back in the Alpha Quadrant, to Troy's relief and delight. Barkley! It was so nice to visit with him again. That was sweet. Yeah, he's got... Uh, do you remember Hollow Pursuits? Do you remember Barkley from TNG Days? pretty well yeah and, and like you and i have talked about him maybe not on the podcast but wasn't he kind of like a stand-in for the fans like <laughs> awkward star trek fans that is disputed uh it was certainly okay. a theory that fans had about the character <laughs> but it was not oh they saw a little too much of themselves in him well and this is something i definitely want to get back to at some point in this episode is the idea that the holodeck is the is star trek <laughs> a, a, a lot of times um, what Star Trek is to us is what the holodeck often is to the characters on Star Trek. Um, that is something that has become, I think, pretty true. I don't... Um, oh, <laughs> I love that! Mind blown! Holy crap! Yeah, just to cover our bases, though, the authors of Hollow Pursuits denied that being their intention. Um, but who knows what really goes on. Um, yeah, speaking of that episode, though, there is obviously a lot of similarity in terms of here's Barkley programming holographic versions of real people to interact with, with whom he has a much easier time being, being himself and expressing himself. Um, yeah. The big difference, certainly ethically, I think, I'd love your take on this, is that in the case of the TNG crew, the Enterprise crew, uh, he knew them and worked with them in like in real life, <laughs> uh, whereas the Voyager crew yeah. he's never met. So... Yeah, they are real people, but they are purely imaginal uh, beyond whatever records he has, as opposed to being 
based on relationships or different from relationships he has in the real world. I'm really glad you, you bring that up, Elliot. And we'll talk more about this on in our on the couch segment. Um, the difference between like real versus imagined objects and relationships. Hmm. Um, but you know, for the for the Voyager crew, there is a real Jacote, there is a real Torres, there is a Tom real Tom Paris. Um, but the relationships, quote unquote, that Reg has with them isn't with the real people. They're with the imagined versions of these people. And so there's like two different versions, the one that exists in Reg's imagination and then the real one. And in a way, that is true for all relationships. Like, hmm. Elliot, there's the real you. And then there's the Elliot that exists in my mind, my representation of you as I understand you. And, and that's true with all relationships. There's the real, and then there's the internal version of that person. And that internal version is very, is gonna be different from the real version. How different is a matter of degree. And it's gonna be a slightly different version for every single person. Like my internal version of Elliot is different than probably your husband's or is different than my husband's, you know? Just like yeah. there's a, like, we all have slightly different internal versions of the people we know. Um, and in Reginald's case, he doesn't have the real version to compare his imagined version to. Like, he doesn't have access to the real version. And, and so the imagined versions of the Voyager crew that we see on the holodeck that Reg gets to interact, that Reg gets to interact with, they fulfill a very specific function for Reg that isn't based on what the real Voyager crew would be able to do for him. And there's that lack of like bi bi-directional relationship. Do you see? Like it's parasocial. Just parasocial. I don't, oh, what do you mean by that? Well, that's it's it's a pretty recent phenomenon. But you know, in the age of social media, TikTok, Instagram, YouTube, especially things like that, um, people, mm -hmm. you know, you have people who present a version of themselves for the camera or whatever, and the audience many times. Well, regardless. The audience always develops some kind of relationship with that projection <laughs> that's on the screen, and but it is uh, unidirectional, right? Because other than maybe getting comments or mail or DMs or whatever, the only you know the, the audience can develop like feelings and attachments to this persona and this sort of celebrity persona that they perceive, um, and have all kinds of real feelings develop but that's it's it's parasocial yeah. because there's no actual interaction happening it's just one direction okay so it's like you feel like you have a relationship with the person because of what you've seen of them but you actually haven't had a real relational experience with them and in the case of parasocial relationships th that kind of drives um in engagement <laughs> you know it's it's the capitalism part of it where you want people to imagine a relationship with you if you're in that if you're an influencer or whatever because that gets them to buy your crap and click on your videos elliot what are you and i doing talking to each other and posting it online for other people to listen to well we're not making like, any money <laughs> that's One. true we're not making money doing this this is a um act of love you know um i i hear you I don't think that's exactly the same as what Reg is doing on the holodeck. It's definitely a real world, like contemporary phenomenon that again, like lots of things we're putting pins on today, but like we should maybe do a parasocial episode. 
Um, but but with Reg and the the imagined holodeck crew, I think it's a little different because the real Voyager crew has no control over these imagined versions of themselves. You mm, know, right? Like it, at least in this parasocial I phenomenon you. that you're describing. Yeah, like you know, I I am deciding what I say on this podcast. I am deciding what I'm willing to share. You know, um, whereas you know, Torres has no in, influence on her imagined version of herself. How doesn't she doesn't even know it exists. Yeah, doesn't even know what's happening. She doesn't even know it exists. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and there's there's definitely a creep factor in there. Not gonna lie. You were supposed to teach me how to play Velocity. No, no way. Reg and I have a hoverball game scheduled. Don't fight. Plenty of me to go around. Reg, I'm sorry to bother you again, but I'm still having trouble with the warp core recalibration. It's no problem. I'll stop by engineering later and we'll talk you through it. Thank you. I really appreciate it. <sighs> Velocity, hoverball, warp core recalibrations? Reg, I don't know how you do it. There can be a big difference between who that person really is and who we imagine them to be. And as you mature, and ideally as you get to know somebody, the relationship you form with that person brings the difference between that real and imagined version of them closer together, but that's not always the case. He is imagining relationships that let him show up in a different way that he can't in the rest of his life. In the rest of his life, he's awkward, he's bumbling, he's insecure, he's nervous. Being afraid all of the time of forgetting somebody's name, not, not knowing what to do with your hands. I mean, I, I am the guy who writes down things to remember to say when there's a party. And then when he finally gets there, he winds up alone in the corner, trying to look comfortable examining a potted plant. And in this imagined version of a Voyager with these imagined um, holodeck crew members, he gets to be the smartest person. Right. Everyone loves him. Impressive. You've outdone yourself this time, Reg. I'll still need um, help with the details. Put together a team. Use whatever resources you need. We have to compensate for gravimetric interference. And how do we do that? I was thinking, what if we applied a narrowband filter to the transponder signal? Barkley strikes again. You are an invaluable member of this crew, Mr. Barkley. Thank you, Doctor. It's nice to be appreciated. There's part of him that, like, needs that experience that he can't find in the rest of his life. And so it's kind of like that imagined reality is giving him something he needs. It's unfortunate that it's not based in real relationships, but it's a placeholder for until he can get those real relationships, you know? To have enough of those experiences in that imagined world, or hopefully in a real world, where you can like take it into the other parts of your life, where mm. you can interact with a real person and not feel so innately inadequate that no other way is possible for you to show up like and, and again so it's bridging it's it's bridging that gap between what is quote unquote real and what is quote imagined like right now for Barclay it's a big big gap yeah. right so how would you bring it closer together well and that's a lot of that is driven by the fact that with the in the case of the holodeck characters and this was true in TNG as well their responses to him are programmed but, but yeah. what I mean by that not I mean obviously all will pull it Grams are programmed. What I mean, like, 
he knows that no matter what he says to them or does or how he behaves, they're going to validate him. And he's going to, yeah. he's safe there. Um, whereas he can't, he can't control um, real people and how they respond to him. And that to me, it seems to be like this underlying psychological drive behind that kind of escape. And to be, to, to, to reinforce what you said, we all do that to some extent. It's just that in Barclay's case, it's out of balance. Um, and he's far too reliant on that world, that imagined world. To, to the, He's so immersed in that imagined world that he has forsaken real relationships. He hasn't unpacked his apartment. He's, you know, he's doing his job, but it's like he's worrying everyone around him. His counselor doesn't think he's fit for duty, etc., I don't want to be too harsh on on the way Barclay is showing up because again just as I'm training to become a therapist what part of what I'm learning to look for is the wound that is causing a certain kind of behavior because especially like dysfunctional behavior there's a reason it happened and one possible interpretation and understanding of why Barclay is the way he is is like think about a little kid you know like when we most people when they see babies see wonder and innocence and like you're the best thing ever you know like we think kids are like wonderful i'm not a family man Riker, and yet starfleet has given me a ship with children aboard yes sir and i uh, i don't feel comfortable with children you know like just this innate goodness that we don't necessarily like always, you know, but when you see an adult, you're not like, you're wonderful. Like it's a, it, you don't quite get that same kind of like feeling toward an average adult person that you do toward a baby, right? Babies kind of need us to think they're awesome. <laughs> All babies need that. If okay. a baby doesn't get that, then they never know how to feel that way about themselves. They always think they're awful. They always think have lo really low self-esteem. They've never gotten the message that they are inherently good if they don't get that as a baby. And that becomes what can be called a narcissistic injury. Like we think of narcissism as like... Negative. Everything's always about me. Yeah, yeah. there's such thing as called healthy narcissism. It's also called healthy self-esteem. Like narcissism itself isn't bad. You, but like when you get into the extreme versions of it, where you're just unable to have relationships or love with other people, where everything is always about you, that's like big narcissism. Mm -hmm. The small, but if you completely lack narcissism, if you completely lack a coherent sense of self, or you think you're just terrible, you have absolutely no self-esteem because no one ever treated you like you were worth anything. And so for me, when I look at Barkley, I see someone who was not valued enough in their early childhood experiences. And that's why he shows up in his real world relationships as fumbling and insecure um, because he never got, he didn't get enough messages in, in his early part of his life that he was actually worth something. And compensate for that, he has to create this imagined reality where he does get that message that he's valued, that he's smart, that people respect him. 
because he didn't get enough yeah. of that and he doesn't quite believe it. So it's this really exaggerated version, but he's trying to fulfill that early need that wasn't met of being valued. And so if I think, if I look at Barclay that way, I'm like, okay, let's get you what you need so this dysfunctional behavior can stop versus what the fuck is wrong with you. Which seems like it's something that's being tried, but it's, it's interesting you bring that. So we don't know uh, anything in the canon that I'm aware of about Barclay's yeah. childhood or his early days, but we do, we know him from TNG and we know that in his first appearance in Hollow Pursuits, he's, he did not get that validation, right? And he didn't, it was, yeah. it's a kind of a circular thing. He didn't get that validation because he was showing up being weird. Barkley, he's always late. The man's nervous. Nobody wants to be around this guy. If I felt that nobody wanted to be around me, I'd probably be late and nervous too. Kind of, that's not the point. Are you sure? It's an interesting commentary on the on the future <laughs> where it's like you show up and you kind of you're socially awkward and it doesn't matter that you are, you know, by all accounts, a brilliant engineer and a nice guy. Uh, you're weird. <laughs> Therefore, we're going to I mean, you know, Wesley Crusher's making fun of him. And what does that say? <laughs> <laughs> oh god damn yeah so that's harsh we can okay. we can we can extrapolate that out where it's like even though we don't know about his childhood we can say that in his real life those negative um or, or that lack of uh how did you put it valuing or, or le- learning to appreciate yourself that one gets as a baby or whatever that that but that lack of reinforcement from others only fed his need for these imagined versions uh, that gi- that give him what he needs, and yeah. there's a philosophy, a, a, a series of philosophies that argue that there is no real version of us. That it, the only versions of us that exist are the our perceptions, whether they be self perceptions or the perception of others. So, but that's beyond the scope of what I think we could talk about. But it was that's it was interesting. I want to hear more about that later. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's it's a shame because, like I said, like well, I mean, the TNG crew learn learns this. And even though he has this record, you know, his, his boss Harkins makes a point of mentioning. Before I brought you onto my team, I reviewed your file. You've struggled with hollow addiction before. From where I stand, it looks like you've had a relapse. I should have been paying more attention to your behavior. I thought I was being a friend by giving you some leeway. Do you have any idea what it must be like for them to be stranded 60,000 light years from home? Do you have any idea how lonely that must be? Yeah, I appreciated what Barclay's, um, I guess, supervisor or boss said to him. Like, your well-being matters more than your work. And, and I wish more employers and workplaces believed that, you know. Um, I wish more people believed that, that they matter more than what they do. Um, and I really also appreciate what Barkley says to Deanna later on as kind of a retort. He's like, There is nothing wrong with me! You said yourself. You've become obsessed with Voyager. What if I have? If an obsession helps me to do my job better? It's a sacrifice I am willing to make. A, a little instability in exchange for contact with a stranded starship. Isn't Voyager more important than my psychological condition? Voyager is important, but so are you. In this era of, you know, 
Instagram psychology and TikTok self-help and all these things, there can be the unfortunate message that like you have to be fully healed in order to like have relationships. Mm. And that's not realistic or true. You know, like we're, we're all figuring our shit out, you know, as we go. Um, and I think he brings up a valid point like that, you know, sometimes people are not going to be fully psychologically stable people. Maybe they don't need to be. Why should there, why should there only be one type of person in the world? You know, um, why can't there be more neurodiversity? Why can't there be more ways of being human that are also meaningful and can contribute? It's a nuanced message for sure in that mm. I agree with you. There's something optimistic, uh, Star Trek futury about the idea that, hey, yeah, this job matters, but your well-being matters more. That's nice. Yeah. Um, on the other hand, he does prove them right or prove himself right, rather. He, he, he does prove himself right in the end because despite his being a little off the deep end <laughs> um, about what's going on here, he is successful, right? He was, his obsession led to a, 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 a work success, which brought not only fulfillment for his own career, but to the entire crew of Voyager with whom, remember, he only had this imagined relationship. So there's something yeah. actually really beautiful about that now that I think about it in that him being allowed to be a little divergent um, in the end crossed that parasocial border in a way that his obsessiveness alone could not. Uh, it's, it's really sweet. aired Crisis Point in its first season in 2020, with the follow-up Crisis Point 2, Paradoxus, in its third season in 2022. Both parts were written by Ben Rogers, with part one directed by Bob Suarez and part two by Michael Mullen. After another Easter egg mission, this time following up on TNG's Lonely Among Us, What is that doing on our deck? I demand to know why this starship has changed its course. Please return to your quarters, delegates. The lizard men will no longer be subject to rat oppression. Ah, they're not oppressed. We raise them as food. They, they like it. Well, we are delicious. No, you should be free to do whatever you want. What do lizards like to do? Hmm, bask? Okay, then you should bask without fear of being eaten. Well, that does sound nice. Ah, this will not stand! Mariner and Freeman have another mother-daughter row, ending with Freeman ordering Mariner not to the brig, per usual, but to therapy. What? You think I need therapy? What? That's no! No, it's the 80s, dude! We don't have psychiatric problems! Counselor McLemo wants her to find a healthy way of channeling her rage, which takes us to the holodeck. Boimler has programmed on holographic Cerritos and crew to help him with his crew evaluation. But Mariner seizes the opportunity to use the program to do a riff on the Trek movies, complete with flying credits, lens flare, and a film screen aspect ratio. 
While Bormler takes notes for his evaluation, Mariner takes on the role of the film's antagonist, Vindicta, who, of course, quotes out of context Shakespeare. Hell is empty, and all the devils are here. Our revels now are ended. Wait, is she quoting The Tempest? Meanwhile, Rutherford relishes the opportunity to be bad on the holodeck by telling his boss how much he likes him and nerding out in holographic engineering. Tendi struggles with the role she's been assigned based on her species as a stereotypical Orion pirate. She's really bothered by Mariner's behavior here and finally exits the holodeck. Mariner continues to be the bad guy, crashing the Cerritos and engaging in not-at-all metaphorical fistfight with Captain Freeman. Before she can kill her, the holographic Mariner appears to save her. So the two Mariners berate each other over their shared psychological foibles until she has a minor breakthrough. Wow, I can't believe I just got my ass kicked by myself and just... Wait, I guess I like working on the ship and... Oh my god, therapy works! Guys, therapy works! Just in time for the ship to explode, ending the film and the simulation. While Mariner got her character growth for the day, Boimler returns to the simulation for some more tips where he learns the guarded secret that she is Freeman's daughter. Keeping the secret ends up causing him to bomb his interview with the captain. In the sequel, we see that Boimler has cast himself as Cephalus Dagger, captain of the meanest ship in the fleet. While Tendi, Mariner, and Rutherford enjoy a fanficy credits, Boimler is called to a brief meeting with First Officer Ransom. He doesn't reveal what the meeting was about, but it has robbed him of his enthusiasm for the sequel. In fact, he bails on the action set piece in the second act to engage with an extra in the background who claims to hold the meaning of life. I need answers. Then you see Kitia. Legend says he resides on the Forbidden Moon. What are you doing? The holodeck just populated that guy into the background for color. I sense Purple Head knows much. If one such as he is drawn to this place, so shall what he What in the reside. alien of the week uh, bullshit? Okay, boys, come on. We have a movie to do, man. We don't have time to chat up the extras. The computer generates a lot of significant-seeming backstory to fulfill Boimler's expectations, but Mariner isn't having it and promptly exits. She learns that Boimler's transporter double on the Titan, long story, was killed, and that's the news that has diverged his focus. When she returns to the holodeck, the subplot has fallen apart, and Boimler is stuck in a cell trying and failing to derive some meaning. He died for no reason. I guess I was trying to make all of this matter because then I would matter. But trying to make this dumb movie important just proves that I'm not. It's just a holodeck program. I know, I was stupid, let's just get out of here. Meanwhile, Tendi and Rutherford can't get on the same page regarding the real plot of the film as she insists on taking it seriously while he just wants to enjoy himself. Turns out Tendi has an unexpressed desire to pursue command, and in the holodeck at least, she's pretty good at it. With Mariner's empathy and encouragement, the pair find God, a la Star Trek V, or maybe it's the motion picture? Oops, no, it's Generations. At which point the movie really starts to fall apart. <laughs> Boimler ends up in a barn with Captain Sulu, who ends up providing just enough wisdom to get Boimler out of his funk. Brad, I've lost many friends, some heroically, some tragically. The randomness of death is merely a reflection of the unexpected joys we find in life. So if I spend my life worrying about a meaningless death, I'll never find joy? I literally just said that. We also learn that Boimler 2 isn't actually dead, but has been recruited to Section 31, so stay tuned for Season 4. So, Elliot, because of our podcast, I have watched significantly more Star Trek movies um, since the first time I watched um, Crisis Point 2, especially, and I 
missed so many of the references the first time. It was just <laughs> delightful to like just see how much loving like affection and making fun of Star Trek there was in this. It felt very or um Orwell Orvillian to me. Or or oh, the, the, right the Orville. Word? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, the Orville. Yeah, yeah. Like I love this and I'm going to make fun of it. Big time. I mean, believe me, yeah. if if we just just did an episode about like picking apart all the Easter eggs, we'd be here for 5 hours. There's a lot that I get, I, I, there's more things I got watching this on, on rewatch than I got the first time. And I'm sure there'll be more the next time. And that's, yeah. that's sort of the whole thing I, I had mentioned, uh, in an earlier part of this episode, how, you know, the holodeck is to the characters in Star Trek, what Star Trek is to us. And no series, uh, embraces that dynamic more than lower decks, which of course is both parodic and, um, in love <laughs> with with the franchise and everything it, it everything it's about, and so these uh, when we look at particularly the lower decks characters and what they get out of their holodeck experiences, I think we are invited to draw parallels with what it is for any character to get meaning out of the holodeck, yeah. and one of the most prominent features of both of these episodes is the idea that one casts themselves. Wait, what's my character's name again? Looks like you're Chief Engineer Silvo Toussaint. Ooh, Cajun? I play Lieutenant Commander Mina Vesper, whose love of science and exploration is tempered by her troubled childhood. Oh, this is such fan fiction. In whatever fantasy is desired, but more to the point of what these episodes are trying to say, I think more to whatever kind of therapeutic function these holodeck adventures are going to provide. So in the first episode, Mariner specifically is like, I'm going to be the bad guy because she's fucking pissed at her mom and yeah. needs a way of expressing that. Oh my God, therapy works. Guys, therapy works. It couldn't be less subtle. There are several really key therapeutic concepts and moments that appear in, in, Crisis point one. Should I just call it that? The sure. first one? Um, so, yeah, she gets to embody being the villain, which is something that she kind of was doing in the real world, but now she gets to, like, really do it and exaggerate it. There was something about being in that role and character that she needed to do, and this was a safe place to do it, you know, or a safer than really being the bad guy, like, outside of the holodeck. So sometimes we do need to be the bad guy. Sometimes we need to let that energy out mm. and do something with it and, and channel it in a different way. It's not getting rid of that impulse. It's channeling it in a way that's going to be healthy and beneficial for you and everyone else involved. But also, like, when she's... When real Mariner is fighting holographic Mar Mariner, she's able to talk to different parts of herself. And that's something that happens a lot in therapy is trying to come into a dialectic conversation and relationship with a different part of yourself that maybe wants something else. You know, it's like, mm. hey, I, you know, I really want to be successful, you know, in my career, but I keep self-sabotaging. Why? How do you talk to those two parts of yourself that are seemingly in conflict with, with one another? And, and of course, sorry to interrupt you, but of course, the, the Holographic Mariner is based on two things. It's based on her own logs right yeah and based on boimler's perception of her because he programmed the character so there is something real about holographic mariner and what the desires that yeah. that character is expressing that is invisible to the the real mariner right 
Yeah, totally. But also, like, when real Mariner is talking to holographic Mariner, she talks very differently than she was before real Mariner showed up. You know, like, it's almost as if real Mariner suddenly is talking to villain Mariner. You only break rules because you know that's what everyone expects you to do. If you really were a badass, you'd do the hard thing and just be a good officer. No, you hate the captain. You complain about her nonstop. It's like your whole thing. Yeah, I mean, she's hard on me, right? She's the captain. And I'm a pain in the ass. But if she kicked me off the Cerritos, I'd be done in Starfleet. It's something about being able to see yourself from a different perspective that allows that conversation to happen. And, and so, but that also requires differentiation. You have to be different than the part you're speaking to. And, and that is also something you work on in therapy is, is not being merged with the part of you that is pissed at your mom and wants to like fucking kill her. It's being able to step back and see that part and talk to it and have it talk to you and have a conversation. Cause that's when you, things are revealed. So yeah, like so what was happening in the in in the holodeck is a very real thing that can happen in therapy. Sometimes it's imaginal, sometimes like you'll be like let's close your eyes and like do a dive and do these things. Um, like I'm kind of talking about it in a hokey way right now, but it's actually a thing. So sometimes it looks like that. Mm-hmm. And other times like that's just happening in the background while you're talking about something else, but it's the same concept concept that's being played out. Definitely. And Yeah. I, I, I do really like the idea that the sort of more agnostic view of the holodeck, so it's a little pathologized in like TNG and Voyager and in DS9, uh, that Hill era of like, hey, if you're spending that much time on the holodeck working through your issues, you're antisocial, you need to you need to get some help. Whereas here, this is the prescri- this is the therapeutic prescription for working on your issues. And I, I like the idea that, hey, it's a technology with a lot of potential and a lot of power, yeah. and it's more what you make of it than what it inherently is uh, that's going what, what effect it's going to have on you. That is a really good segue to something that Boimler says in Crisis Point 2, where he's talking about, when he starts to realize that the program has potential that he didn't initially see your program. It's an adaptive program. The, the, the holodeck's creating meaning for these guys. Yes, yes. <laughs> life is an adaptive program. Oh, we life. construct meaning. Yeah, it, it's just one of those like mic drop moments, like, you know, Cisco with the whole, like, this isn't realistic 1960s. Like, you just like have this very real moment couched in this fantasy. Mm. Like you just said, it's, it's the tool is neutral. It's what we do with it. You know, is this, a, is this for good or for evil? The tool itself doesn't have those inherent qualities. And, you know, we've talked about this idea a little bit, like, how, like the construction of meaning and meaning making. Mm-hmm. But, human, you know, humans, we make meaning. Like, I think a lot of us think there's meaning inherent in, in what we do or see and like we have to discover the meaning as if it's already there and there is also an argument that that is true but you still need a participant the meaning Mm. can't be discovered unless you're there unless you're participating unless you're actively creating that meaning with whatever it is you're in relation to and with it's the tree falling in the woods thing it's yeah yeah gotcha and perception is how you organize patterns, you know? And 
And so I just think that's a really interesting moment when Boimler is saying, like, it's an adaptive program. It constructs meaning. That is the human experience. It is an adaptive program. It, ex- it constructs meaning. Thank you. That is my TED Talk. <laughs> right. By which he's saying he constructs the meaning. I mean, he's he, he gets there in the end, right, where the, the program is just throwing whatever, whatever. He, the program is meeting his expectations. That might be the right way to put it. Uh, because it's technology, and that's what it does. Ah, to that, I have a fascinating answer. And the answer is this answer that's about to be coming now. He's stalling. The holodeck's just building this dude a backstory on the fly. We are way off book here. Oh, I can show you my backstory. And it's up, it's up to him to figure out how to contextualize and, 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 and make his life fit within... The things that happen, even things that don't happen to him. Again, it's it's interesting. It's a it's another kind of parasocial relationship where it's not like he, ironically, he doesn't really have a relationship with Boimler too. They don't really, you know, they're on different ships. They're far away from each other, um, and yeah. yet his death affects him profoundly because of all of the obvious things that he would project onto his his other self, right? Yeah, and what that must mean for him there but for the grace of god go i yeah you know exactly so tendy and you know tendy's becoming very frustrated with rutherford not taking this fun thing seriously you know they're 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 at odds about their approach and she's getting frustrated with him that he's not taking it seriously did you leave and get food oh yeah during the whole time travel light show that stuff always gets me seasick i stepped out to grab a bite you want some no i i feel like you're not taking this seriously uh yeah because i'm not Ooh, smells like fried romulan in here huh guys <laughs> woof someone crack a window <laughs> damn it rutherford why aren't you taking this seriously and it's sort of in the same way that mariner crosses that empathy barrier with boimler in their story uh, he does, uh, Rutherford does for Tendi in, in crossing and realizing, oh. You want to be a captain? Yes! Oh, wow. I- I've never said that out loud before. Yes, yes, I do. Tendi, you'd be a great captain. You don't need a movie to prove that. Really? Are you kidding? I'd want you as my captain anytime. Oh, I can't even tell you what that means to me. As a result, she discovers something very real about herself. It's going to affect her career, her relationships, all kinds of things moving forward. And it all came from this this fantasy in this in this game. Yeah, I love that. That like she she had this desire that she wasn't aware of to take command, and it was only through doing this that she like was really able to see it. To be like, wait, wait, yes, I do. I haven't said that out loud before, even in me. I love Tendi. She's great. I love her enthusiasm. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah I, th- I thought that was a really telling moment and is an example of like the good that fantasy and play can like provide to somebody. Like it helps you figure out what you want. It helps you figure out what you're being drawn to. You know, it helps you try things out before, you know, to see if it fits or not, you know. But um, I, I also love in, in this second Lower Decks episode, all four of the main characters are having a slight, they're making different meaning out of what is happening. They're all having slightly different stories. For Boimler, it's mm-hmm. this existential crisis. Um, for Mariner, at first, it's about the action, and only halfway through does she catch up with what is happening to Boimler. For Tendi, it's like, I want to be in command, and I'm taking this really seriously. And for Rutherford, it's just like, I'm having a good time, I'm fucking around. Um, <laughs> and so that's an example of there's four different versions of reality happening in the same context. 
And mm-hmm. that is something that I think hope not everyone gets to this point, but eventually you realize, hopefully, this concept of there are multiple truths and there are multiple realities. And there's not just one way to look at a situation or to look at what's going on. Like of all, all of those four stories in this Lower Deck episodes, who's right? What's the, what's right. the real thing that's actually happening right now? All of it. There's four, None of it and all of it. None yeah. of it and all of it, right? It's a sign of maturity to realize that there are multiple realities that can be true at the same time. You know, I think I think we've all at some point been in an argument with our partner or a friend and be like, that's not what happened. My view of this situation <laughs> is correct and you are wrong. We have all had that argument. We have been on the receiving end of that argument. It's a thing that <laughs> happens. Um, and this is an example of how, no, see, this that's it's not there's not just one version that's true. There's not just one version of reality that is superseding the experience of everyone else there. Yeah, and on a metatextual level, it's a very good lesson for us, us Trekkies, because what what are they doing here? You know, the thing that from so looking at this in terms of how they're relating to this film, um, Mariner is like, you made a shittier sequel to my original movie, and that's all she can focus on at yeah. first. This goes against everything the Vindictiverse stood for. I was being nice agreeing to come in here, and now you're ruining my franchise and making me late for my eval. Crisis Point was just a sad little tantrum so you could murder the crew. This is an important examination of the human condition. Yeah, i.e. bad movie. I officially disown Crisis Point. Which is not an unfair argument, again, <laughs> on the metatextual level, of like, it is like as the the movie within the show is, is is shittier and very often the sequels in Star Trek movies to whatever they're referencing previously are not as good. Yeah. Um it's it's a fair thing to say, but that's what she's focused on whereas like uh, well, a good example, I don't think you've seen Star Trek 5 yet. And we'll get there. We'll probably have to be drunk for that one. But it is the <laughs> oh, one no. where it is the it is the one where Kirk meets God. Um, is it and, the god yeah. from Crisis Point 2? Is it the rock monster? It's very similar, okay. and he hits it with a torpedo. You doubt me? I seek proof. Jim, you don't ask the Almighty for his ID. Then here is the proof you seek. You've not answered his question. What does God need with a starship? Armed. But Captain, we're firing directly on your position. Send it down, Mr. Takeoff, now! Yeah. Um, no, that's what I'm saying. There are references <laughs> okay, getting okay. glossed over here. But uh, we, most of the fan community, I think, agrees it's not a good movie and looks at that and says, this is fucking stupid. Yeah. What a dumb movie. What a narcissistic thing for William Shatner, William, William Shatner to do, etc. Melvar, you have to respect your actors. When I directed Star Trek IV, I got a magnificent performance out of Bill because I respected him so much. And when I directed Star Trek V, I got a magnificent performance out of me because I respected me so much. But for Boimler, who's in this, like, I'm looking for something that means something. I need this to mean something. There's a way to look at that movie and say, yeah, I hadn't thought of it that way. Of Like, you're really trying for something. We did Generations. Uh, That's another one that's referenced here with the the thing with the the horses. Yeah. and uh, and we talked about how the Nexus is like, this doesn't make any fucking sense. But it 
could. Yeah. And I appreciate that you're looking for that. And like I said, it's getting over that empathy, empathy barrier where we say, ah, this means something to you and I can step away from my ego for a second. So as Trek fans, um, we need to remember sometimes that as fun as it can be to get into these arguments about the minutiae and how, what, what things mean, particularly specific things to us within the franchise, those same things mean something else to other people yeah. and we need to embrace the totality of it. And remember that this is something we all love and is super fun. A common thread that we've seen in these episodes and a lot of episodes dealing with uh, possibly unhealthy relationships with the holodeck is this question of maturity. So in uh, Bada Bing, Bada Bang, you know, it's it's Bashir's program, mm-hmm. right? Originally, and he's it's a follow up to our man Bashir, where he's pretending to be this, uh, you know, um, James Bondy kind of person. It's the same programmer, Felix, right? Okay. I know when to walk away, and that time is now, now. And you know that, Doctor, if you were a real intelligence agent. Oh, so that's what this is all about. The fact that my fantasy happens to step on what you consider to be your private domain. Well, what's the matter, Garrick? Have I bruised your ego by play-acting at something you take so very seriously? And then in Voyager, we're dealing, of course, with Reg. And in the, in Lower Decks, we're dealing with Boimler and, or uh, Mariner and Boimler, respectively. All of whom are coded as being pretty immature <laughs> in their development. And there's this suggestion that they're tendency to look for meaning and have their therapy etc in the holodeck is a symptom or an expression of that immaturity and i think that's interesting it's a little cynical in terms of the technology because holodecks are kind of what video games are perceived to be within our world a lot of times it's it's an it's an immersive reality right and it's an escape and this idea that a need for escape or escapism is a sign of a lack of maturity or, or, or social development. That is an unfortunate take that like the use of the holodeck for these purposes is kind of pathologized, like we were talking about earlier. Um, and it and that the need for escape is somehow seen as a negative, like a cop out, like you should be able to stand your real life. And it reminds me of this comic that I, I saw recently on Instagram who was saying, like, yeah, I'm sober. And people are always so baffled by that, you know. And they think that, like, oh, why can't you handle your alcohol is what they will say to me. And I say back to them, I don't think you can handle sobriety. Sobriety's harder. <laughs> like, to have a really shit day and not want to have a drink or not want to, like, smoke some pot like, you know, I'm doing it on hard mode. You're the ones actually copping out by having a little escape. But I do like seeing that, especially with the Lower Decks episodes, it's less pathologized. You know, I, I do think, mm-hmm. like, that there's a little bit of datedness with Bashir and Reg in saying, like, oh, there's something, like, you shouldn't have these kinds of fake relationships. You know, you should be having real relationships. Whereas in Lower Decks... The holodeck is is working shit out with real people, you know, versus like versus being an escape. Do you remember when you first came aboard the Enterprise? You had trouble fitting in, didn't you? 
I just don't know what to do with him. The guy's always late. He never gives his best effort, just slides by. I'm telling you, I can't deal with it anymore. But after a while, you started to make friends. You can learn to do the same thing here on Earth. Oh, I, I, I don't know how. I think play is undervalued, you know, in today, in, in Western society. Um, you know, play is a really important developmental tool, especially for kids, but also for adults. Like, it's, it's the opposite of survival is play, you know? And, and so I think, if anything, we should play more often, you know, as adults. Like, why should, why should life only be serious? Why should life be struggle all the time? Where's the enjoyment and where's the pleasure that we can find in, in our lives, regardless of how old we are? But also when you talk about maturity, you know, there, I think there's an ideal progression to, I think, that sense of development and what it means to become a mature person, like emotionally, psychologically, socially, like, you know, there are definitely benchmarks that we have deemed as more desirable than others. And when you don't meet that benchmark, like your Reginald Barkley and super fucking awkward, um, you know, like that's somehow like, oh, you haven't, you're less than somehow. Yeah, you're behind. Yeah, You're behind. Yeah, yeah. Like you should have figured this out by now. But just like there are developmental and educational milestones that I think most of us understand, there's psychological and emotional ones as well. And if we don't get what we need at certain developmental stages in our lives, like we will kind of be stunted there emotionally and psychologically until we get that need met. And that's a lot about what therapy is, is, is figuring out what the unmet, unmet developmental need is and providing that in therapy so that it's met and so that the person can start to grow and mature and function differently. And especially as I look at how the holodex was used by Bashir and Reg and, um, and the Lower Deck cast, what is coming to my mind is this psychoanalytic concept called object relations. Um, so, and, and it's this idea that objects can be an object, like a baby blanket, you know, like a security blanket, or objects can be people. Like if you're thinking of a kid, like your mom or your dad, it's a very unfortunate terminology that like makes it hard to understand, but I'll, I'll see if I can do a good job of kind of explaining it. But imagine, you know, imagine you're a kid who has a baby blanket, you know, and that blanket makes you feel safe. It lets you fall asleep at night. When the blanket is with you, everything's fine. And when the blanket is not with you, you freak out and you, your caregivers mm. have to go find that blanket, you know, before anything else can happen. You know, like you've either seen that or you know what I'm talking about. So in that instance, the object of the blanket is what the child is putting their sense of safety into. You know, the, the blanket provides safety. The, the caregiver provides safety, ideally. You know, there's this external object that provides a psychological and emotional need to the person. And we do that throughout our lives. We do it as kids. We do it as young adults. We do it as adults. We do it as elderly. We have external 
things and people in our lives that provide psychological needs to us. And as you mature, ideally, that becomes relational versus this blanket gives me what I need and I don't give the blanket anything. The blanket's there to meet my need versus, um, you know, my caregivers are here to feed me and protect me and I don't give anything to them. My friends are supposed to meet my needs and I don't get, you know, and then when you get older Mm -hmm. and you need that relational bi-directionality, if you, that's the sign of maturity that you still have this kind of like self-object need being met. Like my friends make me feel valued. My partner, I feel love and acceptance. Like we get things out of our relationships. They're not selfless. Like ideally, Mm -hmm. if you are constantly giving to another person but not getting anything back in return, that's usually not psychologically healthy. It's a sign of maturity to, especially for a kid, to like they've been kind of excising their sense and their ability to feel safe to this blanket. That blanket is serving its purpose of providing a sense of safety to the child. And as the child matures, they're able to internalize that sense of safety. And that sense of safety starts to live within themselves versus being placed in that outer object. And so there's a transition from this external thing meeting your need to being able to internalize that. And and that's what I was talking about with Reg earlier. Um, the sense of he needed someone to value him, but he didn't get enough Mm -hmm. of that. And so he feels like he has no value. You know, he never was able to internalize this thing that he initially needed from other people. And I think, I, I think the holodeck is a very sophisticated example of one way that we can try to meet those needs that, if we can't find them in external objects, if we can't find them in other people, if we haven't developed those capacities within ourselves, we try to find it somewhere, you know? And the holodeck Mm -hmm. can be used as a tool to try to meet those psychological needs if they can't be found elsewhere. But again, like, it's just a temporary thing. It's a placeholder. The blanket is a Mm -hmm. placeholder. And psychological and emotional maturity is both being able to internalize those tools I can calm myself down. I can reassure myself. I can tell myself that I have worth. I'm not completely dependent on every single person in my life liking me or else I fall apart. Yeah, the holodeck characters are both, uh, are a a weird sort of middle ground between a blanket and a a real person giving you validation because they are objects in a a literal sense. But they are capable of interactivity. They are capable of interactivity, but ideally, like, you know, Reg would start to be able to internalize this sense of self-worth, of mastery, of worthiness. And he wouldn't need the holodeck characters so much. He could take that into himself and then be able to relate to real people who have their own needs. You know, that's the relational part of it. That is also a sign of maturity. Like, you can actually have real relationships with people. You can they still can give you something that you need on an emotional and psychological level, but you understand that they are a separate person and they have their own needs and it's a dialogue and it's collaboration versus Mm. it just being one-sided. And, you know, I also think about it with Vic. Vic is like a baby blanket. It's like a character (laughs) in a TV show that you care about what happens to them in a, in a way that you rationally understand doesn't make sense. 
but there's an attachment there. There, there's, there's something about that connection and attachment and relationship that gives you something. And once that bond is established, regardless if it's real or imagined or, uh, you know, an object or a holodeck character, like, it's still something psychologically real. I owe Vic. I thought losing my leg was the end of my Starfleet career. He taught me otherwise. He changed my life, too. And Odo's. Vic Fontaine. A gangster named Frankie Eyes took over his lounge. The whole place has changed and no one's sure how to change it back. I guess this sounds pretty silly to you. A little. You have to understand, Vic isn't just another Holosuite program. He's more like a friend. The, the ideal psychological development is the transition from uh, external, object-oriented um, s- sort of safety, um, f- a feeling of safety and security and validation to a fully internalized one where you are providing those things for yourself from your own psychological strength, say, or just uh, complexity. Um, but without, if that hasn't happened in its ideal way to some extent, you are going to find ways to manifest that externalized version in your adult life, in your mature life, be that with other people mm-hmm. or with objects or fantasy objects, and that the holodeck or other kind of immersive realities provide an interesting and, and potentially therapeutic middle ground to get you through that because they aren't static objects or even characters in a book. They talk to you. Yeah. Um, and it gives you some of the nourishment you, would, you, you, you do get from real people and real relationships without having necessarily put in the work that you're not quite capable yet of doing to get them yeah. from real people. Yes, except for one point. Like other other than okay. this one thing, that is that is what I'm saying. And that's a really really good summary. Nice job. You can you know like you're you're getting a vicarious <laughs> psychological trying. like education. Good job. Um, it's not going to be completely internalized. We need people. Okay. Like we need we need relationships throughout our entire life. Humans are wired for connection. Like you can't be a human in isolation. Like. There's this, there's this one concept of like, there's no such thing as a baby. There's only a baby and its caretakers. The baby doesn't exist in mm. isolation. The baby only exists in relation. That's also a cultural thing. Like Western culture very much, much values individualism. And I'm talking from mm. this perspective. So just going to do that disclaimer. But there is this ideal that you want to be able to take care of yourself and not rely on solely on someone else to be okay. But solely is an important word. We always need people throughout our entire lifespan. That never changes. But it's it's moving from being dependent upon someone else to interdependence. Even in the four episodes that we looked at, and there are dozens and dozens of holodeck episodes throughout the franchise, but even in these uh, ones that we've looked at, there is a pretty broad spectrum of how one can interact with the holodeck. Um, And, you know, I think about Cisco and his reluctance to engage with this program, both in its uh, superficial meanings of just like having fun and dressing up and 
shooting guns and being in a casino. Yeah. And it's deeper meaning about this relationship with the character of Vic Fontaine, him getting hung up on that because of a legitimate concern he has about historicity um, in, in the way it's portrayed. And then I look at Tendi and the fact that she is interacting with a holographic program that is the sequel to a program that was about crew evaluations originally and then became about this fight between her friends about, well, who makes a better sequel? And everyone's just trying to do their own thing. And she discovers through that whole process that she has this whole other career that she's going to pursue. I know you can relate. Um, (laughs) (laughs) And what what that tells me altogether is that the the meanings that one can derive from imagined realities, virtual realities, uh, the holodeck um, in its metaphorical sense is pretty limitless. I, I think that's a really beautiful example of just showing that the holodeck is a tool. It can be used for good or evil. People can use real relationships as escapes and distractions, and there's no real, you know, emotional, relational, psychological intimacy you know, but, or there can be, you know, mm-hmm. everything. Yeah. It's, I think it's really about how you're using the tool and how you show up for it and what, what is it you want to do? Yeah. What you're putting in and when, yeah. and what you're getting out. Uh, thank you as always for your unbelievable insight and knowledge and education. Uh, this is fun. This is, this is, this is a rich topic and I feel like we've only scratched the surface, but so we'll definitely come back to I it. know this was, <laughs> This was fun. Like prepping for this episode, I was like, ooh, juicy things. (laughs) Very juicy, yes. Um, Next week, we're going to take a little left turn, and we're going to be talking about uh, vengeance. We're going to be talking about all the... Not all. (laughs) Not all. There's lots in Star Trek. Not Um, all? You're not going to do it all in one go, Elliot, in like an hour? Well, we are ironically not doing any of the movies dealing with vengeance, which is like half of them. (laughs) But... Um, including the most famous one. Anyway, uh, yeah, we're going to be taking a look at Vengeance, um, and I look forward to talking about that with you. Me too. Thank you to our listeners and patrons. Uh, Please comment, like, subscribe, uh, all of that good stuff. On that note, I look forward to talking with you uh, again next week, Elizabeth. Me too. So see you next week. You're not wrong, but you're not right either. And I'm trying to figure out how to respond. <laughs> it's kind of the, the summation of this. <laughs> oh, right. <laughs>